I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. We're back. Happy New Year. Thank you. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Decade. Happy New Decade to you. How you, fe- how you feeling about the decade? Oh, very positive. Yeah. Very positive, yeah. I've been watching a series of bangers recently, catching up on some of the biggest hits of last year. You know, because we're in awards season now, and sure. I realized I got to get my takes fully rounded. There's a Absolutely. few things I've missed. We can't, we do not want to be in the situation of having to talk about awards season and say, oh, I haven't seen this film. I don't know. I don't know if it's good enough. That's no good to anybody. That's horrible. So I finally caught up with Joker, mm-hmm. the multi award winning box office smash Joker. The, the, most, big, the big winner from the BAFTAs, right? Big winner in terms of nominations. Well, Whacking Phoenix won of the Golden Globes. I've now seen it, and uh, it's crap, isn't it? It's shit. I think your review was bang on the money. I really Thank didn't you. like it. I didn't think you would, and I'm relieved that you didn't like it. As many things I dislike about it. I'm trying to think. I'm not sure if you know, the carcass has been uh, picked fully clean by this point. Go for I it. think the thing that annoyed me the most, or the thing that I was most disappointed in, was Whacking Phoenix's performance. Because he's like the only reason to watch it from my point of view. I don't really give a shit about Todd Phillips or Batman that much. But it's like, he's a great actor, you know, considered the best of his, uh, the best actor of his generation, I guess. And it was, he's just like a parody of himself. Yeah. And the thing I found myself just constantly being reminded of other superior films he's in. Like, there's a scene in Joker where he's like talking to his therapist or his analyst. And it's like, this is like the scene from The Master, but shit. And then there's like a scene where he's caring for his elderly mother and it's like this is like you were never really here but shit and then <laughs> there's a scene where he's like on a talk show being a bit awkward it's like this is like when he was on letterman but just not as good like <laughs> you know it's what i mean like, i'm still here yes yeah, like i'm still here <laughs> it was like a real like greatest hits of his performance and it's just so i don't know if it's just because he just hasn't been directed you know like think, the film think, around I, it is quite hacky i think that's it it's like uh todd phillips is drawing on the committedness of Joaquin Phoenix as an actor to supply the kind of artistic authenticity of his movie. But that needs to be tied to a, like some actual purpose, not just to like, we'll give you all the rope you need to go as crazy <laughs> as you, as you want to go. And yeah. that's what's going to sell the film, which is kind of, you know, go on, go on whatever diet you like, break every bone in your body, smashing every set that we make. Yeah. You know, and, and, and therefore this will be an important and serious piece of filmmaking. And it's, uh, yeah. I find that such an annoying argument for why something's good is like he, he dislocated his knee like kicking a bin or whatever it's like it's a bit, a bit like if like your postman turned up he's like you know i ran here he's like why don't you just drive dude like you know <laughs> you're still delivering the mail you know what i mean like yeah yeah absolutely the end result's the same yeah uh yeah it's terrible i also i really i think it reminded me a lot of logan in that 
it was like this isn't a comic book movie right yeah Kiss. Absolutely, it's not no. a comic book movie but the actual world it creates is as cartoonish and silly in a way like it's not the real worlds like the way things play out don't happen as they would in reality so it hasn't really got a take and the whole thing is like oh it's not about batman but if it wasn't the joker it wouldn't wouldn't be a movie like it wouldn't have a take to riff on that's the whole raison d'etre for the film yeah but it's yeah. like oh it's not it's not about that but it's like it's, it's called joker mate and it's about like it's about the joker in it from batman yeah it's, it's like nonsense it's a superhero film so that people will go to see it but it's not a superhero film oh we've taken your money now prepare to have your mind blown by a hard dose of truth and it's just it's nonsense. like it's like superhero movie audiences like the normal superhero films are like you know, a tasty meal that's bad for you. I don't know. It's like junk food or something like that. And this is like the the, the greens for people who like superhero <laughs> movies so that you can have a rounded diet without ever leaving the superhero restaurant, you know? It's yeah, like, exactly. I've seen... <laughs> I watch cerebral films for grown-ups. I watch like fun films for, for children or whatever, but I only watch... I actually only like one kind of movie. Yeah, yeah. It just it gets was... these weird plaudits for, yeah, resembling Scorsese. Also, about going, you know, minute by minute into the film and the things I hated about <laughs> it, I really like doubt like Todd Phillips sort of like morality. The movie is like quite a sort of like pro murder film where every like uh, crime he does is sort of justified by the oh, yeah, film. Like the moral so. standpoint is like society made this man. It's like that's not true because if that you know why isn't everyone a murderer? Like yeah. you know he kills the Wall Street Bros because they're obnoxious and he and he kills his the bully from his uh, the ha ha yeah or whatever yeah. So he's basically he is the hero in that like you know. He kills the bad guys. Yeah. We don't but see him except... Well, I don't know. I guess... Do, 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 do people care about spoilers? I don't, I don't Perhaps know. they do. I don't know. <laughs> but there, is, there are some killings in the film which are, you know, possibly you're not supposed to sympathise with him for. But in general... No, I, I think you are. I think Todd Phillips is a pro-Joker. Uh, pro-Joker man. Oh, the, the problem is that he's trying to make, like... Uh, you know this like uh, tortured individual and he, he draws him very very sympathetically because he's the hero of his movie and then he has this get out of being like but it's about a villain you know that the joker is actually the villain so you're not supposed to sympathize with him but obviously in the language of the movie you are i think I, did i i don't know yeah I, no sir i'm probably just so rehashing like, what you're saying it's but. like the the wall street bros like they really should have been innocent people if we're not supposed to want him to you know like you know he's harassed at the beginning by those kids yeah who, like beat him up with the sign or whatever but they're very young and they're all like hispanic yeah, it's yeah. like if he if he'd like hunted them down and like killed them all with a knife or something like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, then that would have been shocking and would have made you question whether you. Sure, were Travis Bickle's a racist, but right, exactly. You know that exactly. movie has some balls. Uh, but whereas if he kills some fucking obnoxious bankers, then you know you can only applaud him doing so <laughs> in the in in cinema and you know and if it was real. Yeah, it's real real hacky. Just uh, it's not not great. Bob. Not a great movie. I didn't enjoy it at all. Found it very boring. It was very like so much slow motion in it as well. Very yeah. It was like it really sort of it really insisted on itself every time. There's like <laughs> this is an epic bit of art because now that's in slow motion for reasons. Yeah, I just thought it was nonsense. And the eighty setting is so so cowardly. It's like he becomes like a viral star, but before the internet. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it doesn't make any sense. It's just because he's wants to be a bit like Network or King of Comedy and. It's just more opportunities for the film to be real. Yeah, I thought it was nonsense. Absolute nonsense. And I think anyone who liked it is an idiot. But but did, but did you realise that he cried that single tear for real? What? It just made me think This acted uh, at a job? Um, uh, of Whiplash, like uh, J.K. Simmons' character being like, oh, you're one of those single tear people. <laughs> <laughs> 
Todd Phillips is a, a, a fraud and a poser. And he, yeah. and he kind of knows it. I feel like he's deeply insecure about having made this film, straining desperately. That, that, I, like, this is my new thing now, the new f- lens with, through which I will view all cinema, <laughs> is that uh, the, the sheen of desperation, the sweat on the brow of the director. Sure. You can feel like the desperate, desperate straining to uh, produce something which people will applaud as being real artistry. You know, rather, they're so desperate to please. J.J. Abrams, the most desperate to please director in Hollywood. Tom Hooper, incredibly desperate to please. But the thing is, like, you've got to seem like you're trying to please only yourself because you're the real artist. Absolutely. But really, you are absolutely desperate to please, like, critics and audiences. And it's just like, you know, just do your th- Make the Hangover Part 4 or whatever, you know? Just stay, you- stay in, in, your, in your lane. You, you, you cannot, obviously... Or, you know, to... to, to simmer down my level of like contemporary lips for a second like take a real risk and, and do something that is of your own vision like don't just like copycat some other like good directors and then pretend like you deserve to be in the pantheon alongside them just like you know make a film that is personal to you and maybe it'll be good or maybe it'll be shit but it would certainly be more interesting and enjoyable than you know joker was yeah it's like be be for real man just just be do, for real do you man do you do you rubbish um Sorry, I was too busy thinking about other reasons I hated uh, the film Joker. Why am I here? You're here. What is this? You're part of a podcast which is all about three young men, uh, a scriptwriter and a producer and a director who are called in by Benny U. Moran, an erotic film producer. He wants to make a sexy new movie starring a big woman called The Eskimo Now. Uh, however, problems start from the beginning. The scriptwriter is a virgin, a lover of penguins, and hasn't a clue on how to write a sex film. Shit. Each of the three main backers wants a different type of movie, a Western, uh, a straight-up porno, and a kung fu movie with different people in the main part. However, problems really start for the three when Benny runs off with all the money, and they have to make three different versions of the same film and try not to let the backers and stars know what has happened. And this is made harder when there is a clean-up filth society breathing down their necks. It's what I would be saying if this was a part adaptation of the 1975 film Eskimo Nell, directed by Martin Campbell, a bawdy sex comedy, which I'm sure is excellent. Uh, But instead, it's just a podcast in which we talk about and review films. I'm Sam Foster, and joining me, sex movie mogul, Danny (laughs) Moran. Yep, that's what it says on my LinkedIn, sex movie mogul. So, on this episode of Film Chat, we kick off the year by reviewing Little Women, because... Hashtag big boys watch little women. <laughs> the Golden Globes have snubbed the movie. The BAFTAs have snubbed the movie. But will film chat snub it? No, because hashtag big boys watch little women. Trying to get that trending. You know, we need to boost the numbers. Yeah. We're dying. We need to reach We're out dying. to the big boys. Plus, we take a keen eye towards the latest news coming out of awards season and talk about who are the winners and losers and generally complain about the state of the British film industry and how it is run by a bunch of racist, moronic old white men who probably start their day reciting white men's burden into the mirror at themselves. They all need to die, I think. Just line them against the wall. Shoot them in the back of the head. I've been radicalized. Um, All of which should give me just enough time to observe 20 minutes of silence in response to the sobering news that Scott Derrickson won't be directing Doctor Strange the multiverse of madness. I'll start the silence now. Don't edit it down. I won't edit this. In fact, I just edited in, actually. That's even easier. Unless it's so personal to you that you want to really 
observe it. And we'd be like James Cameron at the Oscars where he just like calls it like after two minutes. He'd be like, does it after like 10 seconds or something. What did James Cameron do at the Oscars? He like asked for like two minutes of silence for like the people who died on uh, Titanic. And then he noticed that the producers were getting a bit antsy. So he just like called it at like 90 seconds. (laughs) (laughs) He couldn't couldn't hack it. The full two minutes too awkward. Yeah. So some listeners will be aware we have a burgeoning YouTube channel, uh, which I started about four years ago, posted a bunch of reviews. It's hot. Got bored and uh, haven't posted anything in years, but, it, <laughs> but it's, you know, still it's, it's, it's still out there. We've got a little... Uh, That's the thing, you produce a lot of content and eventually, it, just, it just gathers uh, views to it. Absolutely, absolutely. So let me get this. A gentleman by the name of Jason Mack commented on your It's Only the End of the World review, which was that Javier Dolan movie from a few years ago, saying, finally, a review of a Dolan film that doesn't turn into a discussion of what people think of him as a person. You know what? I I really appreciate that comment. I've been thinking for a while that my review of It's Only the End of the World has not uh, garnered enough like long-term attention. And every week I'm like, when is someone going to bring up that great <laughs> review I did of It's Only the End of the World, a film that people really talk about a lot? Uh, and that's finally happened, so I really appreciate it. I'm going to be reaching out to this gentleman and uh, and offering to meet him, or you know, Venmo him a coffee or something. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> Don't seem a bit desperate ourselves, but we'll literally just give you a coffee if you comment on any of our YouTube reviews. Yeah, absolutely. And um, a gentleman by the name of Louis Alvarez commented on my Star Trek is Star Wars video, which was a brilliant. You did a video essay. A video essay about how. Uh, J.J. Abrams' 2009 reboot film, Star Trek, was just a thinly veiled New Hope remake. And I guess now that, you know, the wheels have come off slightly off the J.J. Abrams machine, people are coming around to my view I had five years ago. So they've, you know... I wonder how many many video essays did this guy watch before... You know, he probably just stopped after mine. It was that (laughs) good. yours first, yeah. He commented, you deserve more views and likes. Couldn't agree more, Louis. I've always felt that J.J. did make a new hope in this Star Trek movie, but you adding things that I didn't realize, dot, dot, dot. Thank you for the great editing and awesome work. Thank you for the great comments and awesome compliment, Louis Alvarez. You are Film Chad's uh, commenter of the week. Very kind. And I would recommend to our listeners, uh, they do go and check that out. Uh, I would say that you're much more likely to enjoy it than my review of this obscure uh, (laughs) French film. Uh, and uh, yeah, you make a you make a compelling argument about the similarities between a New Hope and the Star Trek. I gotta say, reboot. Dougal McQueen helped me edit it. So Sh- shout out to to Dougal McQueen. He, he commented specifically on the great editing, and a lot of that is Dougal. So, well, he's you know also deserves. I don't want to raise you know people the from the uh, creative process. Yeah, I'm not into I... authorship. You know, that's bullshit. It's Every... bullshit. Yeah, <laughs> I call it bullshit. <laughs> I call it bullshit because it's bullshit. Author theory. That's bullshit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but I came by that word by myself. That was all me. That is the one thing. You, the one thing that you can claim. Everything else was a team. Sole credit for. That strange spoonerism. That is you. It's all me, you. baby. That's a nice neologism. Um, well done. 
Superhero films announced, casting rumors leaking out. M. Night Shyamalan's film is hated, Paul Thomas Anderson's is fated, Meryl Streep's Oscar tipped, Matt Damon's in a viral vid, Michael Bay's made a mint, that's the news that's been to print. We're getting into awards season, which is traditional for the beginning of the year. It's usually a time of disappointment in our great um, institutions that give out awards. They tend to be pretty conservative and bad. Yeah. Occasionally something exciting happens, but on the whole, I would say it's just usually a reminder of how stale and miserable and out of touch uh, these uh, people are. Yeah. And this year has begun very much in that style. So we've had the the Golden Globes hosted for the fifth time by uh, Ricky Gervais, someone whose star seems to be on the wane everywhere except in this one specific way. And I, and I don't really know why they keep getting him. Like, do people really... I always get the feeling when Ricky Gervais is, like, performing or talking to other people that they're embarrassed to be around him. I don't know if you feel that. Yeah. Like it's just because it's part of his brand of I don't know there. if it's, like, a sort of cynical, like, you know, clickbaity hire where, like, he'll say something controversial and it'll generate 4,000 articles and people talk about the Golden Glows because these award ceremonies are, like, not remotely culturally important anymore and... Every year the viewing figures decline and this is like, we got to do something like uh, he's yeah. going to come out and compare Tom Hanks to Hitler or something and it'll get people talking. And probably, yeah, I don't know. probably is a big part of it. Yeah. I mean, his monologue was very much uh, as expected. Did you listen to it? I did. And I was like, look at him skewer all these sacred cows. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> it was astonishing. He's like a Lenny Bruce for the Nazis, isn't he? Gervais. Incredible. Mm. Now, take no prisoners whatsoever. It was a sort of like. A broken watches right twice a day. It took me a while to get through that sentence. <laughs> <laughs> type, scenario, type scenario. Type thing. In that his thing is just being rude about everybody, but you know some of the targets are deserved. Like he talked about how uh, there's lack of diversity in nominations. It's like there's nothing we can do about that. The Hollywood foreign press are very racist, which is probably quite true. You know, like. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, in a sort of conservative sense, and they're like, you know. Yeah, I mean, if judging by the nominations, that obviously bears out. Uh, but yeah, and then he made a bunch of like very tedious jokes about, uh, I don't know, streaming and plugging his own shitty sh- show and Epstein and... Oh, yeah, I don't know. Epstein. Was all... Red rag to a bull. Yeah, I know. Ricky Gervais. Um, yeah, it was just quite bad. And the awards show itself was pretty... I guess Golden Globes are usually like a sort of a kind of bellwether award show right like they kind of set the conversations of like so whacking phoenix one is this just the start of the steamrollering like he's going to sweep them all it's phoenix's year the joker made a billion dollars he's doing so much acting in it he's kind of respected as like it's a bit like gary oldman winning for winston churchill right like it's, it's more like a sort of lifetime achievement award you've yeah. put in enough good performances playing, by this point playing another iconic figure yeah exactly in, in, in our culture um and I guess the other big news is that sort of 1917 has like come out as the front runner for best picture, despite being the one that's the latest released in the year. Yeah. It feels like everyone else had a bit of sort of buzz, like It hasn't been going. talked about like that much, I would say. It's all shot in one take. It hasn't actually been shot in one take. This annoys me, I got to say. It's not a single take. It's a single, as you watch it, it feels like it is, but they've, they've hidden the... Listen, the I've, I don't know her name, so this point is going to seem less powerful than it could have done had I bothered to research it. But that camera woman from Victoria didn't like bust a lung shooting one take actually, just so Roger Deakins can set up like twelve different takes, stitch it together digitally, and take all the credit for it. You know, 
if it's not a single take, don't call it a single take. I think that's fair enough. I mean, I'm sure that it's still a technical challenge in order to do the film that way. But, but it's, but it's, it's not, not a single it's take. It's not a single take. No. Um, but yeah, Sam Mendes got Best Director. And another sort of strange thing about the Golden Globes is they split into sort of musical and comedy and then like a bunch of dramas. Like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood won Best Musical or Comedy despite it being neither of those things. That makes no um, sense. So I don't know if that would win out over 1917. I think it kind of would because it's a film about Hollywood and it's got a lot of actors in it. It's about acting. and um, They love that. Yeah, most awards bodies. I'm not sure about the BAFTAs, but uh, the Academy, the largest percentage of the Academy is made of actors. It's, it's often cited the reason why like Crash won is because like everyone had a mate who was in that film. <laughs> so it won just because everyone votes for someone they know yeah you just need the biggest ensemble cast yeah like it kind of <laughs> with the most voters in it so you just cast all the voters yeah in like the spotlight one right it's got that's the most true. actors in it yeah that's true uh the other story that came out of uh, both golden globes and the bafta nominations is the lack of female directors to be nominated outrageous uh absolutely zero um uh, for the golden globes i'm looking at hollywood reporter story here that the last female director to be nominated there was ava duvernay in 2015 um and there is not really a lack of um of, of options this year of like films that seem oscary or that have been very acclaimed um that are directed by women uh, there was the farewell directed by lulu wang um lorene scafari who directed hustlers yeah. which also got incredibly good reviews uh, Greta Gerwig for Little Women does seem like quite a surprise to me. Is that yeah. feels very awards friendly. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And it's incredibly well directed. Um, but yeah, no, no, no joy. Um, Olivia Wilde for Booksmart and Mara Heller for her film about Mr. Rogers, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood seem like slightly longer shots, but at the same time, like they would fit in. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah, it's just a strange, uh, very strange thing. Yeah, to and with or the, Joanna Hogg. Yeah, them, exactly. The like the souvenirs probably the most well-reviewed British film of the last year and like the BAFTAs didn't really give it much love but they gave Sam Mendes all the love they gave him all the love they gave him all the love I don't know why I said it like that way <laughs> but yeah the, and the BAFTAs are even less diverse than the Golden Globes like they didn't, bo- they didn't uh, nominate Jennifer Lopez for Hustlers which seems like a massive omission and didn't even um, they didn't even nominate Antonio Banderas for Pain and Glory. Glory. He won Best Actor at Cannes and has picked up the Best Actor nominations and awards like at every single critic circle thing. I say this as someone who hasn't seen the film, but I just, you know, it seems weird comparing to the other award ceremonies. It's like, well, that is a guy who isn't a white British dude. So I don't know. It, it does like the BAFTAs do have a, like, a weird kind of colonial bent to them where they just like love movies about old British history and like white dudes and like anything new and exciting, which is also, it's kind of the same thing as saying BAME or directed by women because like new exciting voices just come from that demographic more because like finally they're getting the opportunities. Well, it seems like it, kind of, a, it does I, feel a bit like the sort of the rising star, you know, thing is like a bit of a sop to diversity where yeah. you can put in like a person of color or, yeah. or a woman. And then it's like, you know, oh, aren't you doing well? You're really rising. This will actually probably be the peak of your career because we, you know, all those slots will be taken up by all white guys. Um, yeah, I'm really hoping one sort of like quite positive thing in relative terms is that Parasite got a best film nomination for the BAFTAs and Bong Joon-ho got a best director nomination. I think it's going to sweep the foreign film category. And it does feel like it is the film everyone's talking about. Like, it's done huge numbers in America. Like, the box office has been ridiculous for a foreign language film. Everyone likes Bong Joon-ho. He seems like a sort of nice guy. It's the film everyone... It's the least objectionable film. Everyone is such a crowd pleaser, but at the same time, it's like, 
very insightful and very about now and it's just i'm it's excited just, man. it's just fucking great can't wait to see parasite it's the parasite, best film on that list i would say having not seen 1917 maybe i'll take it all back and i'm like oh that single take film what, a, what a masterpiece i don't i do not buy it um yeah i think it's really it's really exciting to see this uh, kind of recognition for a big korean movie a lot of great films seem to come out of korea uh, and bong jin ho's a fantastic filmmaker so yeah that is very cool that maybe is. maybe he's just got i don't i mean there's obviously a lot of like behind the scenes politics to all this kinds of thing as well like yeah. they people producers mount campaigns and you know i do not have any knowledge of uh the insider workings of of, of hollywood and stuff so m- maybe some very canny person picked up parasite early on and has just sold it in this brilliant way i don't know but um, but it's nice to see yeah i guess it got a bump getting the palm door so like the buzz started gathering. Also, I think it's kind of like a cool movie to like in the same way sort of Get Out was. It's like I'm into this Korean film, Parasite, and it's like there's room for one. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's like he's a very famous director, and you know, it's already a huge smash in Korea and everywhere else. So <laughs> it's a massive mainstream hit. So <laughs> yeah, but you know, yeah, yeah, but still, still but yeah, it's got in subtitles. relative terms. I like, know. Did you see that Bong Joon Ho quote where it's something like? Uh, if people can overcome the one inch high barrier of subtitles, there's a whole world of cinema out there for them or something like that. Bong. What a guy. Funny guy. Let me see that. Bong, ba bong, bong, bong. June Ho film, Parasite. That's what I'm going to sing when I buy a, a ticket to go see it. The final thing I want to say about the BAFTAs is that something I was pleased about was the amount of nominations Bate got uh, for Best Astound. Uh, for best outstanding best outstanding astounding film a uh, best british film and uh the award for best debut film for mark jenkins because i think it's a brilliant film and i follow mark Jen- jenkins on twitter and he's a real comrade and he's always liking shit which is like shitting on the tories and always nice. liking labor tweets and i'm radicalized now so he can make nothing but garbage from now on <laughs> but he's my favorite director that's true loyalty sam mendes strikes me as a bit of a melt you know he's, he's clearly <laughs> huge melt <laughs> <laughs> I can't back this guy. Clearly, yeah. It's embarrassing, you know, that like the people representing the British film industry in the international market are these fucking losing these these dudes, these old dudes. We got such a vibrant film community, yeah. you know. We got Andre Arnold and Joanna Hogg and Ben Wheatley and Alice Lowe and Peter Strickland. Yeah, these are great. Very, these are great directors and Lynn Ramsey. She's like the best like, director in the world. And like awful sort of flag waving thesp. Fuck these, these guys. Really stupid Tory films. <laughs> <laughs> stupid Tory films. I mean, they are, though, aren't they? Like, yeah, fuck off to your castle, you twat. Like, <laughs> like Skyfall is like a, it's like a tourist advert for like England. It was about it's Britain. Really it's about the enduring... Did you even uh, fucking cry when Judy Dench was Red doing that Tennyson, Tennyson poem? It's just awful. Fuck off. Like, I was much more moved uh, emotionally when Judy Dench was doing her fucking cats <laughs> during Cats. Like that, now, that's acting. Now, you that know, is acting. She's under, like, I don't know, a good inch of... Uh, digital fur uh, and she's reaching right out into the um the, the cinema audience and you know uh, i don't know rubbing her tail against my legs <laughs> some, some it was pasta, incredible something like that i don't know this is a bit of a garden pass thing so i'm doing this you know and her like uh, sitting in a meeting reading some poem by some old guy about how england is important or whatever no go away not interested sam mendes fuck off fuck off fuck off yeah that's the new brand for film chat 2020 some some angry ranting yeah 
Yeah, I'm ready. I mean, it'd be embarrassing now if we saw 1917. It's like, oh, it's a masterpiece. <laughs> but I don't, I don't buy it. It's going to be more stiff upper lips. It's going to be very, very self-important. It's, it's going to be the, it's like, doing the Birdman thing. Yeah, you know, but it's like more important because it's about war, or whatever. It's more stuff about soldiers feeling sad. You know, we've been here before. I feel like it's going to be very familiar feeling. We've already had the epic war film as well in the form of uh, Dunkirk, which it visually resembles. And um, do not do not expect it to be good. Have low low expectations. But I think we have to see it in order to be able to. I don't know. Maybe we should just uh, embrace this the scathing review, having not seen the movie. Yeah. <laughs> the pre opinion, the the, the solid uh, unmoved unmovable take from the guys who didn't even watch the film. That it's, should be our new thing. That should be our new gimmick. We don't watch the movies. We just we don't even watch them. Yeah. We don't need to. We don't need to. We've got this the solid ideology that it means that we can skip watching the films entirely. Yeah, exactly. And just give like the perfect take, you know, based on the trailers. That's a brilliant idea. Thanks, man. We need yeah. to shake it up. We've been in this, uh, in, the, I know. in what I like to call the game, <laughs> for a while now, and uh, we need a new a new twist, and it's going to be not seeing the films. Yeah. 1917 bullshit <laughs> rubbish fucking one shit. star you just terrible utter the the king's man fucking unwatchable <laughs> <laughs> glad i didn't see it i don't know what else is out this year but that's also shit yeah the aeronauts i fucking hated the it <laughs> the aeronauts that looked like some tory bullshit as well yeah yeah fucking Thought- plumby voice wankers like oh <laughs> we could be solving poverty but we're just going into space now or something who gives a shit fuck you <laughs> fuck you get out your balloon get out your fucking get off your high get a balloon real job. <laughs> get a real job like Meghan markle or harry <laughs> <laughs> like they're doing like they're doing respect. those heroes respect for that I have no respect for that. Who gives a shit? They just pay for like 2.4 million to renovate their house or whatever. It's like, now we're going to go independent. It's like, you're going to give that money back? You're quite right. Yeah, I take that. No respect <laughs> for them whatsoever. No respect for no Harry respect. Markle. That no respect. No surrender. That, giving respect to them jars with our new radical image. Fuck yeah. those guys. Guillotine them. <laughs> <laughs> Should we review Little Women? <laughs> yeah, let's review Little Women. Sam and Danny both watched a film and they decided to record a few opinions on the things they saw. You're gonna hear them in a moment or so. There could be angry disagreements, but their views are normally quite close. A joint review shared between two podcast brothers. Do they let one another speak or do they interrupt each other? The light is on, the guys are in, so let the chat begin. Start talking now. Little, those little, tiny, little, little miniature, tiny, <laughs> small little women. Little women. This is a, uh, I was really hoping you're going to like wax lyrical about the size a bit more. Those tiny little women. Little borrower, <laughs> tiny, little gnome, hobble little, looking little motherfuckers. A <laughs> one inch little, tiny, small, microscopic women. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So, written and directed by Geta Gerwig is her follow-up to... Geta Gerwig? Get a firm... <laughs> Geta Gerwig. Uh, sorry. Little Women. Written and directed by Greta Gerwig. It's her follow-up to the very well-received 
Lady Bird, and the seventh film adaptation of the 1868 novel of the same name by Louisa May Alcott, much beloved. I believe a lot of people read this in their childhood, uh, wept over it, held it close to themselves, developed um, powerful and lasting memories from it. Uh, I did not read it. (laughs) (laughs) And I've never seen a film adaptation of it before. Totally ignorant. So I was coming to, to this completely fresh. It is about a family of these little, unbelievably <laughs> small women, <laughs> these tiny, tiny little women. Uh, Central uh, among them is Saoirse Ronan, uh, once again playing, I guess, like the, like the sort of Greta Gerwig type figure and also the author insert Louisa May Alcott type Well, figure. maybe, you know, it's Little Women influence Greta Gerber. Greta Gerber. <laughs> <laughs> Why can't we say her name? Greta Garbo. Greta Garbo. <laughs> Manny Greta Garbo. Stark naked. Um... <laughs> You know, it's a secular thing. One influences the other. The other makes the thing. Lady Bird is influenced by this. This is that. Everyone's the uh, author. Poetry They're rhymes. All go away. It all rhymes. It all rhymes. Uh, so she plays uh, Joe March. She's one of four four sisters. Um, also uh, Meg, um, played by Emma Watson. Amy, played by Florence Pugh. Uh, and Beth, played by Eliza Scanlon. And uh, it follows them through their sort of late childhood, teenage years into early adulthood. Uh, dealing with love, loss, all kinds of growing up stuff uh, uh, in America after the Civil War, um, or during the Civil War, in fact, at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. during the Civil Lin- Lin- Lincoln during, time. Lincoln time, the Lin- Lincoln period, during the Civil War towards the end, um, and it sort of follows them as, it's like a coming-of-age story. Is that, yeah. a, is that a reasonable explanation of the story? Here is a clip of um, their aunt, March, played by Meryl Streep, a, a, a crabby, wealthy woman, uh, imparting some crabby wisdom uh, to Joe. Josephine! Yes, dear? Is there a reason you stopped reading Belsham? I'm sorry. I'll continue. You mind yourself, dearie. Someday you'll need me, and you'll wish you had behaved better. Thank you, Aunt March, for your employment and your many kindnesses, but I intend to make my own way in the world. Oh, well, no, no one makes their own way. Not really. Least of all a woman. You'll need to marry well. But you are not married, aren't you? Well, that's because I'm rich. Um, I took my my own little woman to see this film. <laughs> You're my mother. Woman. She's a, she's small. She's like five four or something. Yeah. She's a little woman. She's a little woman. Uh, I thought it was great. I, I thought it. I, this might be uh, sounds kind of corny, but I've always kind of a delightful time at the movies. It really swept me along. Uh, I think. It shares a lot of the fine uh, qualities of Lady Birds uh, in that it's going to sound like the bare minimum a film should do, but like Greta Gerwig seems to have that ability that some directors have where there's like an effortlessness to the filmmaking to the point that people don't give her the props it deserves. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. And um, just stuff like there's scenes of all the sisters hanging out and they just really convince as a family, even though all the members are really famous actors. And it isn't done in a slightly annoying this is a 4,000 improvised takes stitched together with like a roving camera. It's all kind of done in quite a stately manner. It's like, this is a well-written, well-directed film, which sounds like real faint praise. But uh, it just manages to, uh, I don't know how to put it, like it's got real life to it. In a way, like sometimes period dramas can be a bit stately and a bit, you're viewing it all through the veil of the past and everyone talks in a very mannered way. It really kind of throws you into the period and you really kind of believe in the characters. Again, that sounds like the most basic thing a film should do, but she's yeah. excellent at it. And I think she's also really uh, brilliant at structure 
the way this adaptation is approached was different from the previous adaptations and the book itself is that it's got this non-linear structure where it kind of flashes back and forth between the two uh, major timelines of the book because the book is like them as kids and then them as young women they're little women and then they're slightly bigger women and usually it's just done in a linear fashion but the decision to the decision to do sort of both timelines at the same time I think is very smart in that it kind of livens up the story for people who have very familiar with the books and stuff and also recontextualizes some of the characters in a way that's really successful and it definitely has its own stamp on it in a way uh which was i think probably hard to do seventh time round uh and another thing that it shares with ladybird is just just a huge amount of empathy for everyone in the film it's got the real like this is another cliche thing to say but like everybody is a main character in their own story like Ladybird had that where every single supporting character felt like they had a huge amount of like a inner life going on. And this is true, the same, uh, this is true here. And it gets, I think I basically bought some of the more mawkish moments of the movie just because it's so clear that Greta Gerwig believes in it so wholeheartedly. It's that sort of quality of sincerity we were talking about in the previous podcast. So yeah, that all kind of swept me along. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I, I very much agree with that. I think she's like a... An incredibly accomplished seeming filmmaker, given that she's only two movies in, but she she seemed very very fully formed when she made Lady Bird, uh, which was which was excellent. And this is another film which is obviously incredibly personal to Greta Gerwig. I mean, maybe my because I haven't seen an adaptation um, of this story before or read it before, um, but I did listen to a bit of an interview. Uh, it was actually on that Hollywood uh, round director's roundtable thing where she was talking a bit about about the film so maybe like that slightly influenced how i sort of read it having heard like her approach to the material herself and she was talking about how uh it was a very important book to her as a child and then she reread it again recently and was incredibly struck by how modern it seemed and how she still related to it as an adult and that feels like that kind of dual experience of the material is kind of what she's brought to this version of the story which is taking place at two time frames at once so it's like the dreaming kids and then yeah the, yeah the, the older adults when they've like lived life a little bit and it's kind of hopping back and forth between the two um and it's she it's very elegantly done like the the the, the moments with which it transfers back and forth between the two time periods is always like in a neat way she always finds like a, a neat way to do that without ever feeling like she's kind of showing off it does mean there are some odd things where what would obviously in a linear story be like a setup and then a payoff or a callback just happens simultaneously and it's this strange kind of symmetry yeah um and i don't know i guess that has its own impact which is slightly different um i think i i also agree that like the it's a very very mawkish story and very sentimental and uh it requires this like incredibly personal approach from greta goig in order to sell that um and it's not trying to be authentic to its period i think and it's not trying to be um a kind of classic period drama or you know resemble like have you know lean into the cliches of period drama um, but instead, it's this it, it's the story as Greta Gerwig personally uh, relates to it. So when like when it has those mawkish moments, I kind of felt like it's not that the movie is entirely. Well, it is selling me on the sort of emotion of the scene. But like the reason part of why I'm impacted by it is because I know that the, the, the creative force behind this scene loves it. Yeah, it's like it's like being swept up in someone else's passion. Like when someone is telling you about something that they love and then they're, they're sort of telling it to you and so excitedly and so sort of happily that you can't help but enjoy it even though it's a bit vicariously and that's kind of how that's yeah, a bit, yeah, that's yeah. A bit how i, I think that's very it. true 
Um, it's a very beautiful looking film. Like everything looks beautiful. And I think it has a bit of a, it's another thing that comes from its dual structure as well. The fact that it jumps back and forth in time. And it also has like a pseudo framing device of uh, Saoirse Ronan's character of Joe is kind of selling the story itself to a guy. Yeah. Um, and uh, that kind of functions as part of the plot, but also as a framing device for the story in a way. And uh, that all gives it a slightly unreal quality, I think. It looks like, I was watching it feeling like, I don't know, if, if I if I wanted to, you know, if I want to say something mean about it, it's like the John Lewis advert film or something. Yeah, yeah, I know it's, you mean. It's, <laughs> it's, it's very pretty. It's beautiful and... looking and pretty and, uh, you know, it's got hearts like written all over it in huge, enormous letters. And it's sort of like watching something through a gauze. It's very sort of hazy and pretty. And it feels like a fantasy or like a memory or like a fairy tale. And it's slightly funny because it's it's all about characters who are dreaming of different lives for themselves. But your experience of watching the film is the dream of another life. Like, I want to be in that beautiful family. Yeah, hugging yeah. all those people and just hanging out and having those lovely meals. And it's like, they're not so rich, it's disgusting. But they're not so poor, you actually wouldn't want to live there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, so I'm. I, I felt like I was inside, like Greta Gerwig's nostalgia for her, you know, her yes. feelings about about the book. And that's like, so it's it is very pure escapism. I mean, the way you described it as being like, um, you know, just a w- wonderful day out at the movies. And I think that's yeah. exactly what it is. It's like you. It's like going to a kind of spa retreat or like a woodland refuge, uh, and just makes everything better again, and it kind of heals you. <laughs> And in a way, like, it is part of the current vogue for nostalgia cinema, but because it's so personal to Greta Gerwig, I think it, it kind of works. Uh, but at the same time, I, I, I really, I can't help but feel slightly suspicious of just how, maybe suspicious is too pejorative of a term, but it's just like, it's so pretty and beautiful and polished and nice and sweet, and <laughs> a bit unreal. It's like, it's like eating a, it's like eating an incredibly delicious dessert and then, not feeling sickly afterwards you know i feel like yeah. that's the experience that the movie is kind of promising to you um and to extend that metaphor slightly further like <laughs> the way that the movie concludes is in this knowing um, yeah. neat way uh which is kind of greta Gerwig having her cake and eating it um and it kind of fulfills that imagery so perfectly because it is about getting to do this like sweet um indulgent thing while also recognizing the corniness of it or the unreality of it but then selling that to you as kind of the point of it like this is a treat it's a treat for you yeah and like basically the final shot of the movie is her literally carrying a cake that she's just baked out to a table and i was like (laughs) (laughs) i was like it's perfect you know it couldn't be winking at me more strongly but that's why the winks are charming you know I'm, i'm charmed by this by this lovely wink and i you know the the experience that a lot of people are gonna get is just this like you know, you, you'll cry some of the least troubling tears you've ever cried in a cinema. It will not, you know, it just be so satisfying and cathartic to cry them. And everyone will come out feeling better about themselves. And so I cannot hold anything against the film, yeah. you know. But I but I do feel like on some level it's a bit insubstantial. No, no, I agree, yeah. I think it's definitely a case of, like, it's Greta Gerwig's Little Women. I mean, that's exactly it. And the ending, uh, which gets a little kind of meta... I think, like, when I first saw it, I kind of, I wasn't quite sure about it because even though it's in the context of this kind of, like, 
nothing too terrible is good. Or like, you know, when the bad thing happens, like this is as bad as the movie's going to get. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's very clear the parameters of misery that's going to occur in the film. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but one of the, I think what keeps the plot kind of interesting is that it's like life is messy and there is no kind of moral justice in the world and like good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people. And then the ending is so sort of like sewn up. It kind of feels a bit incongruous to the actual plot of the book. And also, it takes on a slight, even though it's all through Greta Gerwig's perspective, it's so overt in the end. It's like it takes on a slight kind of narrator stance. Like it's got this Olymp- the success of the movie is that the characters feel so alive and well realized and well performed and acted uh, that you really kind of buy into them. And then like it kind of steps back as like, what do you want? You're watching a story. Don't worry, I've got it all figured out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But and I can't really like you. I can't. They might as well have finished with like like a sort of Buster Scruggs style cutaway to the book and then the page closing. And, yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, I would say the acting is stellar. Yeah, I wanted to highlight that as well. I think all the performances are really, really excellent. And that's another thing that is obviously a real talent of Greta Gerwig's as well, is getting great performances out of her cast, which is which she definitely did in Lady Bird. And yeah, once again here, I think they're all putting in great... Uh, I thought they're, they're all doing great work. I think Florence Pugh's Amy is particularly good. Yeah, she's excellent. And they're all like... They're all kind of types. You know, you can see them much, and I'm sure one of the seventh other adaptations do lean into this a bit more, but they're like, like uh, Timothy Chalamet's Laurie could just be the foppish, handsome dude next door, but he's got much more layers than I've seen in previous adaptations. And Amy particularly, who's sort of the pretty girl, is all kind of like unlikable. And But the way Florence Pugh plays it is very nuanced and the way it's written is very nuanced. And yeah, it's just, there's a lot more meat on the bones than it kind of needed to have in a way. And I think... Yeah, that's kind of half. You know, there's just there's a lot going on with the characters. Again, that sounds like the most basic <laughs> shit a film should do, but you know, most films don't succeed in that. You know, most films don't feel like it's one vision completely realized, and you know, the characters feel real and authentic. That should be the bare minimum of all films. But well, it's like I think again, it, it feels like you're all the casting and all the kinds, the way that the performances are done are all to sort of please like Greta Gerwig's attachment to the material. Like yeah. Like Timothy Chalamet's casting, I mean Chalamet's very so hot right now anyway. But at the same time, he's a he's a particular type. Mm. I would say who's not who would not necessarily fit the kind of classic, uh, like handsome young man of period dramas, like because he's very like I don't know, particularly skinny and very kind of wet. I would say like he's yeah, a little, I don't know. little soy boy beta cuck, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, I do find. I, I'm starting to think that the perfect role for him was Call Me By Your Name when he is a bit of a whiny teen. And, yeah. uh, and that the, like these more grown-up roles, or you know, I don't know if they really fit him. He always looks like he's about to cry. And he was totally miscast in, in The King. And I'm starting to feel like I'm a bit... Someone needs to just, you know, slap this guy and get him to grow up. He's actually... He was really well cast in Lady Bird as well as this kind of like pretentious emo yeah. guy. Um, but, you know, but still, he, he puts in a, really, in a really good performance and he fits beautifully into the film. And as well, I think Eliza Scanlon does a really good job with Beth, who's probably the worst character, I would say. I don't know what she's like in the book or in the adaptations, but it's just a inc- a bit of a one-note, perfectly yeah, virtuous person. Yeah, just yeah, a kind yeah. of symbol of, like, uh, of virtue, which feels... I mean, I, I'm not that familiar with Victorian literature, but I read, like, a bit of Dickens, and there's a very, like, Dickens-type character, like, the, the, the perfect woman who's just, you know, too, in fact, too perfect. She's too pure for this world. She's too pure for this world, yeah. Um, but that was not grating which i think is a testament to the you know creators of the film and to their performance so uh, yeah, yeah it's, it's just very winning you know 
find a little woman and take her to see little women. Yeah. That's my, that's my advice. You must be accompanied by a woman at least this short <laughs> to, to be on this ride. Yeah, and it should have got nominated for a, some BAFTAs. Honestly, this is the most awards-friendly film ever. I think it's crazy that it's not been nominated. Yeah. Like, it's, it's a massive crowd pleaser. It's a period piece. It's a passion project. It's firing on all cylinders. It's doing must be doing big box office. Yeah. I, when I went to see this movie, uh, I went to two sold-out screenings before. I, it took, I had to go to a, th- a third cinema in order good, to... Good, good. In order to find... Just uh, little women as far as the eye could see. Yeah, I think, like, I mean, I went to two, like, quite small cinemas, but still, you know, movies are not normally sold out, and uh, it it wasn't, like, the day of release, either. It was, like, a week later, and, you know, it's obviously a hit, and it's very bizarre that it's it's not getting more awards attention, and I hope it does pick up some Oscar nominations, because it feels like it certainly should be. (laughs) Hear, hear. So, Danny, in your catch-up of the best films of 2019 so far, uh, what else have you seen that, that you'd overlooked before? I went to see Cats. Did you see it in the cinema? I saw it at the Peckinplex. A great place to see it. That is, a, that is actually the perfect place to see it. The, the <laughs> Were there any kind of comical things that went wrong during the like, weird time? Uh, no, unfortunately not, but I think just the general atmosphere, there was a lot of like, what are we all watching together? It was quite a communal experience. And then in the film, there was a, a round of applause. Because <laughs> we were like, what the fuck did we just watch? Was it a slow clap? Or? No, no. It was, a, it was like, you know what? That was not money wasted. Absolutely not. That was five wasted. pounds worth of entertainment. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure if I can add anything to the conversation of cats. Much like the much like Joker, the, the carcass has been picked cleaner than a fish in the hands of James Corden's fat cat. He likes to eat <laughs> his stuff. hungry cat. His hungry, hungry cat. Yeah, it's totally mad. Uh, just, I mean, it is going for it. Whatever it's going for, it's going for it. It is going for it's it. It's got to be said. It's not holding back. Yeah, and I'm not sure if, like, if they had uh, done it without the CGI if it had been less weird in a way. The weirdness is what makes it. Uh, but yeah, it's just... It's favorite cat? Favorite cat. I really enjoyed the railway cat. It came out of nowhere. Yeah. It was really like... The tap dancing The cat. tap dancing railway cat. Because like... It's at the moment in the movie where you're just like, we need, we need like a... Like a railway cat to come in right now and he just delivers well it's just like it's already it makes no fucking sense right but like they're living in this weird cat world they go to cat heaven judy dench picks which cat's soul gets to get in a bit hot bigger hot air balloon and go up to cat this heaven. woman has been ostracized from cat society and her reward is to be sent away in a balloon to yeah. be somewhere else and then like all the cats they're all like they're all um you know, tabbies and like cats who live in big fancy, you know, uh, sort of Victorian houses to rich owners or something. Yeah. T.S. Eliot's mates cats. Yeah. But then like the railway cat, it feels like a real stretch. Like we're running low on cats. <laughs> and when he turns up, it's like, you know, the famous railway cat. It's like, I understand there's like, there's fat cats and there's cats that are a bit capricious, yeah. but like is railway cat, like, like a the, type of like cat. The, people... It's like the Key and Peel sketch about gremlins too. Yeah. Really? <laughs> Um, yeah, that was a favorite of mine. I enjoyed also, I mean, I'm going to spoil it now for listeners, but thank you for not spoiling the fact that Ray Winston is in this film. Oh yeah. I think that's possibly the most embarrassing bit, but I think just because his persona is like the guy from scum 
is now a cat. <laughs> it's like a gangster cat. It's like a gangster cat called like Growl Tiger. And he's like hissing and like, and he's like, Arr. he's sort of like half committed to it. I don't know how much money they gave Ray Winston. Like he's only in it for a bit as well. Like you're a bigger actor than you're as famous as everyone who's on the poster, right? How would you, how would you like rate the, the cast from like left with most to least dignity? Because I would say the like least known cast members come away the best. Yeah. And the actress, I'm embarrassed to say, I can't even remember her name right now. Uh, ballet Fran- dancer. Francesca Hayward. Francesca Hayward, exactly. She is, I think, actually like, legitimately good in the film. Yeah. You know, has the, the right kind of attitude, is fully embracing the cat thing, and is a great dancer, so kind of moves in this way that... Yeah. You know, just about. She is the closest you know to what? how she, the film. She's should. got great poise. If everyone in the movie was like Francesca Hayward, I feel like it might almost almost work. Uh, and the the kind of MC character is also played by a non famous actor. He's yeah. fine, I think. You know, he does. He can. He can come away looking happy. I guess that's it. It's like you know, these like the people. The more famous you are, the less dignity you have. At the well, end the end. less excuse you have to be in it, right? You're like these people just looking for a job. Like they're young actors. They got a. They got rent to pay. They got stuff to do. They haven't got a film career. Like Judy Dench and Ian McKellen don't really need the money, or any of the famous people do. I think that's why Ray Winston's the most embarrassing because he doesn't need the money. He's not in it that much. So it's like, how much is your? If you're going to be in it, be in it. It's like, or maybe he walks away with the most dignity because he's only he's in it for the least. Maybe he's like, how much are you going to pay me yeah, for a day like as a cat? He does have to lap that milk, doesn't he? It's a bit like, oh, poor Ian. Yeah. Oh, Ian. No, I was talking about Ray. Oh, Ray. Yeah, that's G. Yeah, I, I think mean, you, I think Ian like... and Ray probably walk away with the least, and Judy Dench she can do anything now, can't she? She's like I'm just an old, uh, an old dame, and I'll just fucking turn up and be be the boss cat. I mean, she's the cat with the most, uh, you know, status in the film, so I guess that's the best role. That is true. Yes. Do you think there is an element to which, if you're a professional dancer, you're used to um, very kind of extra productions sure and it's all a bit fantastical and wacky and you you wear crazy costumes and yeah you know you you, you're you're part of that world so the fact that you're a real cat human hybrid thing or whatever just seems to be fitting within the more fantastical world of dance well i'm sure francesca hayward's done swan lake or whatever it's like i've played a swan i'll play a cat whatever you want like when you go to see cats on stage i assume you don't really spend the whole production cringing at the, the the performers because you're like, this is your world, you know. Yeah. This is you, this is where you belong and you fit in here. And dance is, I think, intrinsically like poetry or something. You know, like it's a very sincere thing. You can't really do it ironically, and you know, you open yourself up to ridicule by doing it. I would say, like mm. the you know, you've all seen the film Billy Elliot. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, whereas if you're an established uh, thespian. You know, you, you risk getting into Strictly Come Dancing territory where you're making a joke of yourself. And if you went on stage and you saw Judy Dench trying to be in the stage production of Cats, then you might still be a bit like, this is embarrassing, Judy. You know, you should be doing great theatre or whatever and not this like weird cat dance show. <laughs> so so perhaps, perhaps that's the calculation. Like Maybe the whole thing wouldn't have made people feel so weird and uncomfortable you know, if it had had like a cast of professional dancers who weren't famous, you would just be like, I'm entering this world and it's not too jarring. It is a bit weird, obviously, because they're covered in digital fur, but you know, that's the world I'm getting into. Whereas but you're constantly being reminded of these non-professional dancers who don't belong there. Yeah, that's weird. You know, that's my new cat's theory. Just came up with it. Interested to hear feedback. Let me know in the usual, in the usual way. 
by YouTube. By YouTube, <laughs> by the YouTube comments. Leave another comment on my review of It's Only the End of the World. Tell me what you thought about Cass. Cool. Um, do you want to go see 1917? No. That's the answer. Well, I kind of do. I c- we know we're not going to review it. That's our thing. Oh, right. You're right. That's right. We're not reviewing it. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. I won't. Actually, if so I do what see films, it, I'll, I'll pretend I didn't. So what films shall we not see and review next week? The films that we should not... Definitely not see. Well, we've already not seen Uncut Gems. Yeah, that's, that's very good. So <laughs> we'll review that. We'll review that. Um, and maybe, and we'll do a late review of Midsummer. That's right. I've caught up in Midsummer. You have yet to do I've so. I've yet to do so. I've, I have developed. I've been cooking on and developed a take. Uh, cooking on? I've cooking been cooking on. on a take. Cooking on a take. So this is what happens when you don't script your entire podcast and you have to talk <laughs> off the cuff all the time. You say stuff that's complete rubbish. Um the other night, I'm going to tell a boring little story here. I was feeling, I was a little unwell the other day, and uh, at sort of peak illness, I decided to watch Midsummer and stayed up too late watching it. And I had a bit of a fitful sleep afterwards because I was a bit, Ooh. you know, feverish or whatever. Uh, and every time I woke up, I was just like, you know, you get into a bit of a weird fugue state, and like the, the same thoughts kind of go through your mind over and over. But for me, it was just my take on the film Midsummer, which I developed shortly after watching the film, and then I just had it like pounding where my head and I, I oh had this my idea God. that I was like mastering my view of the of the movie because I kept waking up and thinking about my opinions about it. So anyway, so you can have big expectations for that because I spent a while in a kind of feature <laughs> just just going over and over my take. I know it's six months late, but Sam literally entered a fugue state to abolish his <laughs> review. So, so yeah. look forward to that. Yeah, it's going to be good. Cool. All, All right. right. Well, uh, welcome to 2020. Thank you. That's to our listeners. Thank you again for checking us out and see you next time goodbye bye let's do it these little women (laughs) wow you're liking it huh oh yeah amy just burned joe's manuscript i don't see how he could ever forgive her (laughs) um joe's a girl it's short for josephine but joe's got a crush on laurie You mean it's like a girl-girl thing? Because that is the one thing missing from The Shining. Uh, actually, Laurie's a boy. No wonder Rachel had to read this so many times. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.